0: Um, There's a few visitors in the congregation this morning, so um, if you are joining us for the first time, I really do think I should tell you where we are at uh, in our uh, morning services at London City Presbyterian uh, Church. Uh, In recent times, we've been engaged in a sermon series entitled, What Does It Mean... To be a reformed church. What does it mean to be a reformed, we call ourselves a reformed church, what on earth does that mean? We've looked at some of the foundations of reformed Christianity and we've begun to look at some of the theology. Now, uh, over the last couple of weeks, in the last few weeks, um, it's been the first two points of Calvinism that's really grabbed our attention remember this, I'm sure if you, you've been here. We've looked at the first point, we've looked at what's called total depravity of man, the extent to which sin affects human nature and human life. So we've looked at that. Then last week, if you were here, you'll remember vividly, I am sure that we looked at unconditional election, God's choosing of a people for himself. Yes, you remember that. Well, all of this brings us neatly uh, to today. Because this morning what we're going to do in our time together before we come to the Lord's table is we're going to consider the third point of Calvinism today. And that is, of course, the, <laughs> in the word tulip. And everybody knows what the L stands for, don't they? Uh, today we're going to consider the subject before us as limited atonement. Some people call this definite atonement. It's legitimate enough or particular atonement. So it's really the question of whose sin it was that Christ dealt with upon the cross of Calvary. Whose sin was on Jesus' shoulders as he died. You see? So this is limited atonement can i be honest with you i'm actually getting into this i'm bursting to 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 run with this this morning so let's just let's just do that let's hit the ground running let's look at the first of our questions this morning and it's this now this gets to the heart of the matter here's the question for whom did christ die let's ask that question Quite simple, it seems quite simple. For whom did Christ Did Christ die bearing everyone's sins? Or did he die for a select group of people's sins? For whom did Christ die? You see the question, do you, friends? Yes? And this is how we'll we'll deal with it. What I'm going to do is just run very quickly through the four main views of this okay four main views so you ready for this we're ready to go uh, everyone's prayed up we've had our caffeine we're ready to go with this yes first of the four comes what is called hypercalvinism so have you heard of this have you heard of that Calvinism, friends i think the initial thing i've got to say is that it sounds cool <laughs> doesn't it doesn't it? it sounds kind of active this sounds really hyper-Calvinist. Maybe bounce about in the, in the pulpit in front of you Sunday by Sunday. Maybe many of you think he is too hyper. Uh, a Calvinist! Well, that is nothing to do with hyper-Calvinism. Okay, so what is a hyper-Calvinist? A hyper-Calvinist believes, yes, that Christ has died for the elect. Christ bore the sins of his people on the cross. Fine. Okay, the problems start when they try to apply this. So what does a hyper-Calvinist do? A hyper-Calvinist says that since Christ has only died for his people, there is then no need for us to go and proclaim the gospel to the world. That's not the job of the church. God is going to save who God is going to save. So you don't need to worry about witnessing. There you go, a hyper-Calvinist attitude. Now, I... Um, pretty sure there are no hyper-Calvinists at London City Presbyterian Church. I think you would have made yourselves known by now. I'm also pretty sure that you're not going to encounter all that hyper-Calvinists as you go about your day-to-day life. And because that idea is so kind of out there, so wayward, I don't think we need to dwell on it too much. So what will we do with hyper-Calvinism? Let's just take it and stick it over here for the moment on our A pew of error, a shelf of error over here. Let's leave hyper-Calvinism. Okay, second one. Now, you ready for this? Second view of the cross is what you might call, or what you have to call, Amaraldianism. Amaraldianism. And usually, for the boys and girls, I get them to fill in the blanks on their worksheets, don't they? And the boys and girls will notice I haven't done that today. I feared that you might spend the whole rest of the sermon... Trying to spell Amaraldianism. But what is Amaraldianism? Well, do you know what? It's nearly reformed. Quasi reformed. It's what you might call kind of four point Calvinism. An Amaraldian believes in election, you know? They do, and an Amaraldian believes in the atonement. But here's the problem. What an Amaraldian does is reverse the order of God's decree. Reverses the order of salvation. Do you see what I'm saying to you? That instead of God choosing a people and then Christ dying for those people, what does an Amaraldian believe? In the mind of God, Christ dies for the sins of everyone. And it's only then (laughs) that God chooses the people for himself. Do you see Amoraldianism reversing the order of salvation and the decree of God? Now, what's the problem with amaraldianism? I think it's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, who did Christ die for? He died for those the Father would give him and had given him. So do you see it? The choice of the Father obviously comes before christ's death and dying you see it and again i don't think we're going to encounter too many amiraldians so it joins hyper calvinism over here don't sit in this pew ever this is the the pew of error so hyper calvinism amiraldianism over there okay now third one and this is it like this is the nitty-gritty this is the controversy Third, we come to what we said before, it's called Arminianism. Now, listen to me please. This, what we're going to deal with in the third one here, is now remember what I said last week. This is the majority view of the evangelical church. Now you just think about that for a moment. I'm saying here this is wrong. So I am saying that the view that the wider evangelical church has, the understanding it has of the cross, is incorrect. Isn't that that something? So what do they believe? What does an Arminian believe? Now listen to it. We've got to get this right, don't we? An Arminian believes that on the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ has borne the sins of... Every single person who's ever lived. Now, don't get it wrong. It's not that wider evangelicalism is universalist. Do you see what I mean? It's not that they think that everyone is saved. But uh, an Arminian believes that Christ has borne the sin of every single person who's ever lived. And they come to faith. They come to salvation through their faith. Now... You follow that, yeah? You will, because we're going to delve into it a little bit. Now, where do they get that idea from? Well, if you're an Arminian in here just now, you're going to say, Andy, we get that from the Bible, man. Because what does John the Baptist say of Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Or what about the great text of Arminianism, which is First John 2.2. 2. Listen to this one. Christ is the propitiation of our sins. But not only ours. The sins of the whole. The sins of the whole world. So all of a sudden, this morning, it seems like this is pretty convincing. That Christ on the cross, he's born whose sin? He's born, he's taken everyone's sin. He's taken everyone's sin. But what happens if we just press that little bit and examine it a bit this morning? Now, if you know your Bibles, isn't this true? That sometimes in Scripture, when God, the Holy Spirit, speaks off the term the world, sometimes that doesn't mean every single person who's ever lived. What about the Pharisees? Do you remember this? The Pharisees in John chapter 12, and what? Did, they're so exasperated, they're so annoyed, and they say of Jesus, "Look how the whole world has gone after him." Does that mean every single person <laughs> across the globe is following Jesus at that point? Doesn't mean that. What about when Scripture says Caesar has taxed the whole world? Are we supposed to believe that the people in Indonesia were being taxed? Does it mean every single person throughout the globe? No. Now, this is the point. This is the point. What happens when we read that text of Arminianism in its context? Do you see it? John is writing to Jews. And he's writing of the worldwide scope of the gospel. And what did he say again? Christ is the propitiation of our sins to the Jews, but not just ours. The propitiation of the sins of the whole world. Do you see what it is actually that John's saying? He's not saying that on the cross as the nails went into Jesus' hands and feet, that Christ was taking the sins of every single person. What is John saying? To the Jews. Christ hasn't just died for Jewish believers. Christ has died for people from Brazil. From Nigeria. People from Scotland even. People from, from, from England. Do you, do you see it? If you do, surely you now see that this idea that Christ has died for every single individual, it crumbles. Arminianism falls apart. And then, so it's over there too, but then we get to the fourth and the last of these. And it's what we're going to call this morning, Reformed Orthodoxy. Okay, and so the question now is, what do we believe? Or what does London City Presbyterian Church believe? What do I believe as a Westminster confessional Calvinist? What do, what do we believe? Well, here's a novel idea for you. Why don't we look at the Bible? Okay, so you've got John chapter 10, that E. Red, you've got that in front of you, do you? Would you do this with me? Would you look at verse 3? Look at verse 3. And this is the question I'm going to pose to you. Who are, now it seems simple, but bear with me, who are, in verse 3, Jesus' sheep? Verse 3, who are Jesus' sheep? So they are those, do you look at it, those who hear Jesus' voice, and those he calls, and those he leads. Look into verse 4. So Jesus' sheep are those who follow Jesus. Right, so if I had a microphone and I went to you just now and I asked you the question, who are Jesus' sheep? What are you going to say? I'm hoping you're going to say, they're his people, right? Jesus' sheep are Christians. Those who follow Jesus, right? Christians, yes, yes. Okay, now, let's follow up. Second question. Are there any people who are not Jesus' sheep? Look at verse 26. Do you get it? Verse 26. He says to the unbelieving, yeah, "You are not the sheep." So you get the idea. Who are the sheep? So you've got sheep and goats, don't you? Who are Jesus' sheep? They are His people. No question about it. Everyone in here can see that. For John chapter 10, can't you? Yes! Now look at your text, verse 15. The text for today. Look at it. For whom did Jesus die? I lay down my life for. And what's your question? For whom did Jesus die? For whom did he lay down his life? Did he die bearing the sins of every single person? Jesus says, John 10:15, I have laid down my life for my sheep not for the goats the sheep now I think if that was the only verse for limited atonement I would be convinced I really do do you know what is beautiful about this that limited atonement definite atonement is splattered all over the bible what about revelation chapter 5 answer me this Has Christ died for all tribes and all languages and all people and all nations? No! What's Revelation chapter 5? He has died to save people from, (laughs) from all tribes and from all languages. Do you see it? Not every single person. What about Acts chapter 20 verse 28? Has Jesus died to save everyone? Acts 20, 28? No! His blood purchased the church. The church and the church alone. And I could spend the next two hours reciting verses to you from Scripture. I don't need to, do I? Do you see the point? The Calvary was a definite atonement. There was a limited atonement, a particular atonement, or as Matthew's Gospel tells you, why did Jesus come? He came to save his people from their sins. You see, Christ has died and did for the church. But then a second question that we have to ask is this. What on earth does that tell us about the nature of the cross? What does that tell us about the nature Of what was happening in that darkness that engulfed Calvary. What do we learn? We're going to go to the table later. What have we learned there about the cross? I uh, have spoken about uh, seminary in the past from the pulpit. Um, I've spoken to you about how frustrated I was when I uh, began seminary all those years ago. About 10 years ago, I went in... Foolish young man, I'm still foolish, I'm just not so young anymore. But I remember sitting in the Old Testament classroom, day in Old Testament, and you were handed the syllabus, uh, you know, the program of what you're going to be studying at seminary, and I remember moaning, moaning so much, uh, because it was just this word appearing all the time. It was just like, everything was to do with covenant. And I just looked down the syllabus and the, the, the program of what you're studying. was like, covenant this, covenant that, covenant this. And I was like, come on, I'm going to go out into ministry. Like dealing with people who are ill and, and, and evangelizing and lost. And, and Covenant this, covenant that. Is this really important? Do you know what happens? <laughs> the first lecture, we began to study that. And we began to scrape away. And I saw almost immediately... How important it was, you know. You just begin to study it, and it just opened up, and I felt so, I've, yeah, so wrong. I spent last night praying that that would happen. Here. Praying, praying that, and I don't know how you view this limited atonement. Maybe this morning you've woken up and you come in here and you're thinking, this is boring, man. Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're thinking, this is divisive. You could be thinking that. He's he's drawing divisions between Christianity and Christians. This is divine. Maybe you think I am praying. That it's just now, we open up, that's just a little bit, that you see this is everything. That you see how this is so vital for the way you understand the cross. And I also have to say this. That where we go next in the sermon is shocking. I find it shocking. So prepare yourself for it. So what is it? Here's the question What is it that the wider evangelical world, what is it that an Arminian believes about the cross? Are you ready for it? Ready? Brace yourself. If you are an Arminian, if you believe That Christ has died for the sins of everyone. Then, on that cross, you do not believe that Jesus secured salvation. You believe that Jesus secured only the possibility of your salvation. Now, if you have not grasped that, I am going to rephrase it, and you will grasp it this time. So you ready for it? If you believe that Christ has die for everyone and yet some people still go to hell then Christ has not secured salvation on the cross has he? he has merely secured the opportunity for you to be saved how? by your faith now friends if you've engaged with that do you see why that is shocking? because answer me now think about it who then if that was true Who then receives the glory and the praise in salvation? I mean, let's take an example. Let's take me as an example and my unbelieving neighbor. So we've got a Geordie that lives next to us in Woodford Green up in the northeast of London. And as far as I know, and there's no telltale signs to say that this man is a Christian, believe me. But let's take me and this Geordie neighbor of mine. Now according to wider evangelicalism, according to Arminianism, Christ has dealt with us exactly the same. Hasn't He? He's loved us the same. He has borne each of our sin. What's the only difference between me and my unbelieving neighbour? What's the only difference? I have responded to Christ's work by faith. Do you see it? That's what Arminian says to you. Do, do you understand why this is shocking? The grounds of Arminianism is what? It's not the blood of Christ. The grounds of salvation is not the cross of Christ. It's not the blood of Christ. The grounds is what? It's my faith. The glory does not go to Christ. The glory does not go to God. The glory for salvation in Arminianism, it goes to me. Because I have believed. And you've heard the name G. I. Packer before, have you? This is what he says. Reformed Christianity, it speaks of a God who saves. But Arminianism, it speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. Do you see that it's shocking? I pray you do. And I reckon, I reckon I know if you're a Christian what you want me to do at this point here. You want me, don't you, to affirm what you know to be true. And that is surely that on that cross, Jesus Christ did not make you savable, did he, friend? What did Christ do? He actually saved you from your wretched and horrific sin, he didn't make you savable. He saved you, Christian friend. I mean, just please. Just think of some of the aspects of the cross. Think of redemption. Think: are you really saying to me this morning that Christ has paid the price that was on your head by his blood only for God to keep you captive until you believed? No chance. What well, do you know would be true? Christ set you free. He liberated you at the cross. Or what about propitiation? Are you telling me, really, that Christ faced all of that suffering? That suffering. Only for you to be the one to turn God's wrath away from you by your own faith. Are you sin. no, what did we read? He... Is the propitiation of our sin? Or what about reconciliation? That doctrine, isn't it, ah, oh, isn't it so precious? That doctrine of a restored relationship, a friendship with Almighty God. Are we really saying Christ only purchased that as a possibility at the cross? No, what does your Bible say to you? We have been reconciled. It's happened. It is, do you understand it? It is past. It has happened. Christ has already secured this. In Christ, death became not a potential rescuer of his people. What did he become? He became for us the once and for all substitute. The once and for all atoning sacrifice for our sin. And I hope And how I have prayed that right now, at this very moment in here, if you're a Christian, you see the implication of all of this this morning. Do you see what it means for your life? It means that this very morning, you can have full assurance of your salvation. You see why? Why? Your salvation is not dependent upon you. Like your salvation scripture tells you is not, it's not dependent upon your, <laughs> the strength of your faith. It's not the, dependent on the performance of your faith or the way that you feel love for Christ. Can you imagine if it were? We would be dotting in and out of salvation all the it's not dependent upon the strength of what is it dependent upon what Christ has already done for you on a cross outside Jerusalem do you understand this morning Christian friends if you have repented in the Lord Jesus Christ when when were you saved when were you saved do you see in a very real sense you were saved over 2000 years ago Outside of Jerusalem. And isn't that why this morning this table is so precious to the people of God? Isn't that why we love coming to the table? Why we love communion? This is not about a death of possibilities. This is about a death. The only death that has actually procured for us sure eternal life. And then the last of the questions that we must ask and answer, are there further implications of this doctrine? Do you see why I'm saying further implications? You've just seen limited atonement gives Christians full assurance of salvation. Are there any other implications of this? Well, let's return to wider evangelicalism and Arminianism. Now, think of the logical extension of their point of view, their understanding. staggering. If you believe that Christ has borne the sins of everyone, and I doubt any Arminian would disagree with what I'm going to say, then the logical extension of this is that God loves all humanity in the same way if christ has died for all then christ loves all of humanity in the same way and that's really nice isn't it like we live in a society where you are not allowed to offend anyone are you You're not like you mustn't can do anything you can do anything but you can't offend anyone basically isn't that right and that's a really nice soundbite god loves everybody the same God universally loves everyone. It's beautifully politically correct, isn't it? God universal love for everyone. What's our concern? Politically correct, but is it biblically correct? Well, my wife and I, Catherine and I, over the last few months, we have been doing a number of marriage preparation courses. Okay, they're brilliant. We love doing them. I love doing them. Just. She loves doing it too. Yet the idea that we have engaged couples will come up uh, to the manse and we will talk about marriage in advance of the wedding day. Okay? Love doing it. Now, have a stab in the dark as to what passages of scripture we end up talking about uh, when we're doing a marriage preparation course. If you were to shout at that, you go, Genesis two, yes, God institutes marriage. Yes. Anywhere else? Ephesians chapter five, perhaps? Yes almost every time we're in Ephesians chapter 5 where we read this husbands love your wives now listen to the next bit husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up her do you see what that teaches you do you see what we learn there we learn a couple of things don't we we learn wow limited atonement's right who did Christ die for he gave himself up for the church Mm -hmm. but what else do you learn you learn that the atonement you learn that the cross came from a place of Particular love and special love for Christ's people. Do you see what I mean? Did God? Does God? Does Christ love every single person in the same way? Scripture says no. Christ so loved the church that he was willing to give himself for her. There's a Special love for the church. Do you see it just as the husbands in this room just now? They do not love all the women that they know in their life in the same way, but cherish who? Their spouse. So what is true of our Savior? Yes, he reserves a special place in his heart. He reserves a special place in his affections for his brides. For the church! Oh, and I wish, and I hope that you see, Christian friend, what that means for you as an individual this morning. Sorry, as an individual in here just now. Do you see what it means for you? That just as we saw last week, that Christ loves you eternally, what do you see here in Ephesians? That such is the love... That Christ has for you, that He has been willing to give His life, not for everyone, but He's been willing to give His life for, for you. Do you see that? You, Christian friend, are not just a nameless, faceless soul in this world to God. You are not just one person in amongst the multitude to the Lord Most High. You are adored by God. You are cherished by Almighty God. Do you understand the atonement was an accomplishing act? That it was for a specific people, but the atonement was for a people who are especially loved by the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and then we end with this where we have to end limited atonement should must liberate the witness and evangelism of the church now maybe you see straight away again why it is that I've got to talk about witnessing. So if you are an Arminian this morning, do you understand the pressure that is on you in evangelism? Oh, I'm glad I'm not you. If you believe that Christ has died for every single person and salvation is dependent upon you, upon a person and their faith, why isn't it that your friends have not come to faith in Christ? Why is it that your family hasn't come to faith in Christ? Do you see the pressure? It's about you. It's about us. If it's just dependent on how they respond to the gospel, not God's work, it's about have we been convincing enough? Have we been eloquent enough? That's the reason that people are not being saved, because it's all about their response. See the pressure? But what do we know to be true? Oh, hallelujah to God for this. The pressure is off the church in evangelism. That now this morning, we are free to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel with great confidence. Why? Because Christ has already done the work. Do you see it? He secured people in London that we're going to talk to. He's already secured people from different tribes and from different nations. We can go out, we can tell people there can be a renewed confidence in our witness. Why? The success of the church in evangelism assured 2,000 years ago. Friends, I hope this morning that you go out of the doors of this church clinging very firmly limited atonement, definite atonement. It is so important. Why? Because this doctrine assures that the glory, the honor, the praise, and salvation does not go to you. does not go to me. This doctrine ensures that all of the glory and all of the praise eternally for salvation, it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Why? Because of our text. On the cross what happened? Christ laid down his life for us, his sheep. Let us pray.